AA Beyond Belief is a podcast by, for, and about people who have found a secular path to sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous. Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson was written during Victorian times when it was considered proper to repress one's emotions. Stevens' novel could be considered a criticism of that tendency, but more importantly, it appears that Dr. Jekyll was clearly addicted to a drug that seemed to change his personality. So in this episode, I will explore the strange case with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with my friend Sam. And Sam, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you, John? <laughs> I'm wonderful. And I thank you for suggesting this uh, podcast episode because I I know the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And when you read like references to it in the big book, I understand that it's a doctor who drinks a potion and he turns into this evil character. And that's all I knew. So, so I, uh, it was, it was really neat to read the book and, you know, I had to really read it kind of slowly. It was really well written, no doubt about it, but I really had to kind of pay attention because it was written so well, I guess I'm not used to reading, um, language like that, but anyway, so I read through it and, uh, I liked what I, it was really interesting and I could definitely see the parallels of addiction with Dr. Jekyll and his potion. Yeah, for sure. Um, despite having minored in English in college, I had never read it either. Um, and I struggled with it a bit too at first, um, with that Victorian language, but, um, but yeah, I, I was actually kind of inspired to finally read it, um, because I had a, a friend go through a relapse recently and, um, just seeing like the change in personality, between their sober self and when they were drinking, um, I thought this is just so staggering and maybe I should write something about this. And then I thought, I think maybe something's already been written. about. Yeah. <laughs> so I decided to finally read this. And, um, I mean, I think even when new people come in and you watch the process of them getting sober and you kind of start to see the personality changes. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot in this that that is relevant to that so why don't you uh help us out since you've read this book twice and i think you have a pretty good understanding can you kind of put it in context and kind of give us kind of an overview of the book to help us with our conversation sure so um as you said the the full title is the strange case of dr jekyll and mr hyde written by robert louis stevenson in 1885 published in 1886 um so stevenson was british and this novella is set in london and it's known as a commentary on kind of the dual nature of people or the bifurcated self so the good and evil within all of us and sometimes the difference between our public persona and our private life. Um, so it falls under the category of Gothic literature, which is a genre known to combine fiction and horror, death, sometimes romance, although there's no romance in this one, um, and employs darkness, drama, fear, dread, secrets, supernatural elements and bleak motifs. Um, and in that vein, um, most of this novella takes place at night. There's um, lots of fog involved, and sometimes the physical atmosphere is actually described as being as in a nightmare. Um, so just for a little more historical context, um, in 1885, um, the uh, Berlin Conference was concluding where the European countries were um, splitting up Africa for colonization. Um, the U.S. president was Chester A. Arthur, and he dedicated the Washington Monument that year. Um, the Statue of Liberty arrived in New York. Um, child prostitution was outlawed in Britain. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> Uh, the first rabies vaccine was tested. Um, Carl Benz patented the first automobile. 
And this was also the year that Ezra Pound, Alice Paul, and George Patton were born. How about that? So just kind of some fun historical tidbits from My then. My great-grandmother was born around that time, and I actually knew oh. her. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I When she was in her late 90s, I would sit at her feet, and she would tell me about what it was like when cars first started driving around on the streets. Wow. <laughs> That's <laughs> fascinating. Yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway... So um, how should we approach this? Do you want to just kind of go through the book itself, uh, chapter by chapter? or Yeah. I'll let you kind of lead the way. Why don't you kind of lead us through the book? Okay, that sounds good. So um, the first chapter is called The Story of the Door. And we start out with two characters, Utterson and Enfield. And they're two lawyers and they're friends that like to go on walks together. And they're out on a walk and Enfield points out the door of a building to his friend and tells him a story about um, when he, he was walking down the street previously late at night and he witnessed a man uh, trample a girl in the street and he chases down this man and brings him back to the scene and a crowd kind of gathers around wanting to see some justice done for this girl. Um, And the man uh, goes to this door that Enfield's pointed out uses a key to get in and comes back with a check um, for the girl's family. And the check is signed by Henry Jekyll, who is a friend of these two men who are talking. And um, Enfield indicates that this man was Mr. Hyde and that he um, had seen him as recently as like last week, still using a key to get into this door. Um, So, one thing that I, I thought was kind of funny um, as they described Utterson was that he was inclined to help rather than to reprove. He says, I let my brother go to the devil in his own way. And he is frequently the last reputable acquaintance and last good influence in the lives of downgoing men. Oh, I didn't even catch so, that. Do you think he's got like sort of an enabler? Is that what you're thinking? Perhaps. Um, it he kind of struck me as um, a helper with pretty good boundaries, but um, <clears throat> interested in, in helping people. And it also kind of drew to my mind the attraction rather than promotion part of the program. And it's like also later about him, though, later in the book, he he begins to have some suspicions, but he never really goes too deeply in exploring those. He always kind of puts it out of his mind. And mm-hmm. we'll, we'll talk about this later, but he actually has like um, something in his safe that he later, you know, opens a letter that mm-hmm. he would never, never read. But yeah, so he has this friend who's, who he has some suspicions about, but mm-hmm. he just kind of lets it go. Yeah. Um, so the next chapter is the search for Mr. Hyde. And we learn that Utterson um, is Dr. Jekyll's attorney. So back at his home, he takes out Dr. Jekyll's will from his safe and notices that this Mr. Hyde is his beneficiary. So he goes to visit um, a mutual friend of his and Jekyll's named Dr. Lanyon, who thinks he might be able to explain what's going on. And Lanyon says that um, Jekyll's one of his oldest friends, but they had recently kind of grown apart because Jekyll was taking to some kind of unscientific ideas um, and kind of falling away from practicing sound science. Uh, But he hadn't heard of Hyde. So Utterson goes home and he keeps dwelling on this mystery of Hyde. And this is when Utterson really starts to remind me of like someone in Al-Anon, like a, <laughs> <laughs> like a friend or a family member right. of an alcoholic, because it says that he was laying up at night puzzling on it. And he says, if he could but once set eyes on him, he thought the mystery would lighten and perhaps roll altogether away, as was the habit of mysterious things when well examined. He might see a reason for his friend's strange preference or bondage, call it what you please, and even for the startling clauses of the will. And at least it would be a face worth seeing, the face of a man who was was without bowels of mercy, a face which had but to show itself to raise up in the mind of the impressionable Enfield a spirit of enduring hatred. 
So that just kind of reminded me of the non-alcoholic trying to puzzle out the reasons for their friend's alcohol abuse and to kind of explain why their attitude is the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. I found it interesting that he, um, he did. I don't know if he actually really questioned why, why is this guy giving this other guy, making this other guy the beneficiary and making him such, such a great close friend who can come and go from his house as he pleases and so forth. It's like, you know, Utterson never really questioned that it seemed. Yeah, I think at this point in the story, he knows that Hyde is some kind of bad guy, and he knows that he's the beneficiary to Jekyll's will. He has no idea what their connection is, and I don't think they know yet that the door Hyde entered was a back door to Jekyll's laboratory. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Okay. So those pieces kind of fall into place okay. as the story goes on. Okay. Um, so Utterson at this point kind of starts stalking Hyde. <laughs> yeah. Um, he, he stalks Hyde's the, the, the door that Enfield had pointed out, kind of waiting and wanting to see him in person and get a better idea of who he is. Um, which, again, kind of the Al-Anon obsessive thing. Um obsessing over this person. So he, he eventually does see him coming into the door. So he goes up to him, really startles him, introduces himself and asks to see his face. But Hyde basically refuses and slips into the house and shuts the door. Um, so then I, I think this is at the point where he kind of realizes it's the back door to Jekyll's place because he go he goes around to Jekyll's front door um, and asks to see Jekyll, but the ser- Jekyll's servant, Poole, says that Jekyll is not there. So Utterson talks to Poole about the fact that Hyde has his own entrance into Jekyll's laboratory in the back, and Poole says that all of the servants have been ordered to obey Hyde. So this is when Utterson starts to believe that Jekyll's definitely being blackmailed or punished in some way or taken advantage of by Hyde. So he decides that he really wants to figure out what Hyde's weaknesses are to help relieve Jekyll from whatever bind he's in with this man. So here again, the friend trying to find a reasonable explanation and figure out a way to release his friend from the grips of his problem. I, I kind of missed some of that. Um, th- I probably would have benefited from reading it twice too, that he put together that the, the that door was actually the door to um, Dr. Jekyll's uh, laboratory. Yeah. 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 I don't think some of this, I, I definitely got from the second reading. Um, so in the following chapter, Jekyll hosts a dinner party, which Utterson attends and, Utterson's able to take him aside and bring up the issue of the will and ask who this Hyde man is. So Jekyll tries to change the subject, and Utterson presses him on it, um, saying he's learned, you know, that Hyde did this terrible thing to this girl. Um, But Jekyll gets really defensive, says there's no point in talking about it. Um, Utterson saying, I'm your friend. I can help you. Just let me know what's happening. And Jekyll says, I can get rid of Hyde anytime that I want. Yeah. yeah. I have this under control. Let it go. Right. You know, which is very familiar. Yeah. Yeah. To any yeah. of us. I, with I, I've done that myself, experience. actually. You know, people yeah. have a talk to me about, you know, you've got a little problem here. You know, you could get in trouble. Your job is on the line here. Oh, I've got it under control. Don't worry. And I, but I believed it. And maybe Jekyll believed it too. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think we've we've all experienced that, and this this part really did strike me as like the intervention <laughs> that was that was refused. So Utterson says, "Listen, I'm not going to pretend to like this, but I'll do what you say. I'll accept it." You know, um, and Jekyll says, "Yeah, you don't have to like it, but basically <laughs> get off my back. Like <laughs> this is my deal. It's none of your business." Yeah. Um, so about a year later. There is a gruesome murder of an old man in the street takes place. So there's really about a year has gone by and there's no issue with Hyde. 
Um, so apparently Jekyll has it, quote unquote, under control for a while. But then this horrible murder happens. There's a witness who identifies Hyde as the perp. And so something that's on the victim, I, I wasn't quite sure, some kind of paper um, had to do with Utterson. I think he was like a client of Utterson, and there was something in his pocket. So Utterson's called in to identify the body. And they also find information on Hyde's personal address. Um, so they go to Utterson and the police, go to Hyde's place, the servant says he's not there, but they go in and search the place, find, you know, find it ransacked, papers burned recently in the fireplace, and they also find the murder weapon there. Okay. So this was Hyde's apartment in Soho. This isn't uh, yeah, Dr. Jekyll's house. This is actually Hyde's Correct. place, right? Yeah. Correct. Because he had set up this whole he scheme where he was going yes. to somehow... Because he loved being Mr. Hyde, you know, he got a thrill out of it. Mm-hmm. So he had this elaborate scheme um, drawn up where, you know, he would have this separate apartment for Hyde. He learned how to write his signature. So, you know, backwards or whatever. So it would look like different from his own signature. And he created this whole, you know, what um, I guess uh, story that to somehow keep this going. And so that was his apartment. Yeah. 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 So exactly. Later kind of in Jekyll's confession, we find out that he has set up this whole system to protect his second life. Right. Which also seemed very familiar. Mm-hmm. So they're ransacking, um, they're, they're go to his apartment and says, yeah. ransack and they find so the they murder don't, weapon, they don't find the cane. Him. Yeah. The cane, right. Mm-hmm. Or whatever's left of it. Um, so then in the chapter incident of the letter, Utterson goes back to Jekyll's place. He's let in by the servant. Uh, Jekyll looks super sick. Uh, Utterson asks him if he's hiding Hyde. He insists he's totally done with Hyde. Never again. Right. <laughs> never, <laughs> never deal with Hyde again. <laughs> right. That was, that was the last yeah. time, period. Yeah. Um, right. So... I noted that I'm reminded at this point in alcoholism when really bad things start to happen to us and the alcoholic says, I swear I'm, I'm really done this time. Right. Yeah. So as he was Hyde, he was committing this murder and I'm kind of jumping ahead, but he, he's like, when he's committing the murder, he's really getting a high from it. He's, he's not feeling as Hyde. He's not feeling any shame, remorse. He's actually thrilled at the, at the mm-hmm. murder. But then later as Jekyll, he's feeling the remorse. And that's mm-hmm. when he tells that's when he tells Utterson, I'm I'm not I'm not gonna mess with this hide. I mean, he's done. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. So um so Jekyll says that he's gotten this letter from Hyde and he shows it to Utterson. Um and the letter says basically, thanks for everything, but I'm out of here. You'll never see me again or whatever. And Jekyll claims that he uh he'd burned the envelope, but that it was hand delivered to the house anyway. Um, so Utterson is leaving and he asks Poole who delivered Hyde's letter to try to get it, you know, get a trail on where he might be. But Poole says no one's delivered anything to the house that day. And there was no envelope. He said no envelope, no postmark or anything like that. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Utterson takes the letter and, um, to a friend of his to, compare Jekyll and Hyde's handwriting. And that's when we find out that it's the same, except the slope is different. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, but Utterson still thinks that Jekyll has forged a letter to protect Hyde. Um, And so here's kind of the allusion to like the alcoholic lying and covering things up. Right. Right. Okay. So he, yeah, he's really trying to protect his, friend i guess or he just doesn't want to believe the worst about his friend right i mean i think at this point the idea that they're the same person is to it's it's a super it's the supernatural right. element right. of the thing right. so it's kind of unfathomable right. true true um so then we have the remarkable incident of dr lanyon um so Hyde, obviously nowhere to be found. Utterson goes back to visit Lanyon, who looks like total shit, is what I wrote. <laughs> um, oh, that's right. Oh, that's right. I remember this. This is amazing. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. So he says that he's had a shock that he probably won't recover from. Yeah. And Utterson tells Lanyon that Jekyll is really sick too, but he says, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to have anything to do with that guy anymore. Like I'm done. He's given up on Jekyll. So Utterson goes home and he writes to Jekyll asking about why he and Lanyon have fallen out, like what happened to their friendship. And Jekyll just writes back like, I'm in deep seclusion. I don't want to see any of my friends anymore. Um, So this is when I'm reminded of the alcoholics starting to isolate, drink alone, uh, cutting themselves off from the world. And I can't remember, Sam, is it because Lanyard actually saw Hyde? And does he kind of understand now? Is that the deal? Or is he just just saw Hyde? So later in Lanyard's letter, that's the letter that Utterson doesn't open for a Mm -hmm. while. Um, He explains seeing the transformation. Okay, 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 gotcha. Okay, So we still don't know what's wrong. It killed Lanyon. It was just too much for him to handle. Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. So, um, So Jekyll writes... Back to Utterson, you must suffer me to go on my own dark way. I have, <laughs> I have brought on myself a punishment and a danger that I cannot name. If I am the chief of sinners, I am the chief of sufferers also. I could not think that this earth contained a place for sufferings and terrors so unmanning. And you can but do one thing to lighten this destiny, and that is to respect my silence. Wow. That's beautiful writing, isn't it? It is. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Um, and it goes on to say, Utterson was amazed that the doctor had a week ago smile with every promise of a cheerful and honored age. And now in a moment, friendship and peace of mind and the whole tenor of his life were wrecked. So great and unprepared a change pointed to madness, but in view of Lanyon's manner and words, there must lie for it some deeper ground. So here Utterson, the friend, shocked by the speed of this personality change that they've witnessed. And um, so then Lanyon does die about a week later. Utterson receives this letter from Lanyon, which says, do not open until the death or disappearance of Jekyll. So he respects this. He doesn't open the letter. Um, But he does go back over to Jekyll's place. Poole says he's more confined than ever to this area over his laboratory where he's been silent and brooding. And um, yeah, so he's, he's unable to see Jekyll yeah, at that he time. Begins and he begins isolating just... more and more. He's withdrawing mm-hmm. from everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so following that, the chapter incident at the window, Utterson and Enfield, they're back on another walk. They pass this back door to the laboratory they see Jekyll through a third story window and Jekyll's talking to them out of it. He says that he's very low and he thinks he's going to die soon. They tell him he just needs to get outside and right. get some fresh, get some fresh, fresh air. air. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, why are you just in there? Like dying <laughs> alone. Um, but he says no. And then all of a sudden his face goes crazy expressed as an expression of abject terror and despair as froze the very blood of the two gentlemen below. And so Utterson and Enfield just book it there. They get scared and they <laughs> run away. <laughs> um, all right. So next chapter, the last night pool comes to visit Utterson to say, Something's horribly wrong. Like, this has gotten completely out of hand with Jekyll. All the servants are terrified. We can't take it anymore. Um, they even think maybe somebody broke in and murdered Jekyll. Right, and, and is the living in there. is living there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're totally and, freaked out, aren't they? Yeah. They're not comfortable. No, no. Um, it's, it's become unmanageable. <laughs> so, Utterson goes over the house to investigate... Um, Poole says whoever is living in there has been crying night and day, yeah, weeping like a lost yeah. soul. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. And begging for some kind of medication. But the servants can't find this medication from the local chemists. 
um, Utterson calls into Jekyll, but he hears Hyde's voice come back. So he thinks Hyde's in there. He's killed Jekyll. Um, so they break down the door to go into Jekyll's uh, little hidey hole. They go in. They find Hyde. His clothes are way too big for him. He's dead. He's still twitching. He's got an empty vial in his hand, clearly having just committed suicide. And it says, Utterson knew he was looking on the body of a self-destroyer. Wow. Which really kind of hit me. Yeah. I feel like I could say in a meeting, hi, my name's Sam and I'm a self-destroyer. So they search around thinking they're going to find Jekyll's body. They don't find him. They do find some papers, which is Jekyll's will um, with Utterson listed as the beneficiary now instead of Hyde. There's a note written in Jekyll's hand dated for that day and um, another sealed packet, which is what I believe ends up being Jekyll's whole confession that we read later. So Utterson then takes all of these documents back to his office to read them. Oh, you're doing a really good job going through this book. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's probably the best summary of the book I think I've ever heard of before in my life. It's really, really well done. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, okay, so then now we finally get to read Dr. Lanyon's letter mm-hmm. now that we know that Jekyll has disappeared. So um, Lanyon said that he had received a letter from Jekyll asking him to drop whatever he's doing, come straight over to his house, go into a specific cabinet, take its contents over to Cavendish Square. And at midnight, which I'm not exactly sure where that is, but somewhere off site. <clears throat> and at midnight, he's supposed to admit some guy to his house and give him all that stuff from the cabinet. So Lanyon follows his instructions. He gets to the cabinet. He finds some vials of substances. He takes them. He meets this dude. The man he meets is enclosed way too big for him. Uh and he describes him as something abnormal, seizing, surprising, revolting. The man is really eager to get his hands on these substances that he has. He mixes them up, and um, he kind of asks Lanyon, like, are you going to stay for this? <laughs> <laughs> and so he decides to stay. He says, sir, you speak in enigmas. <laughs> <laughs> And so the guy drinks the mixture. He starts to convulse and swell up, mm-hmm. and his features in his face seem to melt and change. And um, ta-da, he He's is Jekyll. Dr. Jekyll. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's when we learn what the shock was. Right, right. And so, yeah, then finally we come to this last chapter, the longest chapter of the book. And if anybody listening, you know, hasn't read this and maybe doesn't want to read the whole thing. Um, yeah, the I would story say is in the last chapter, isn't it? Yeah, definitely just read this last chapter because yeah. to me this is where all the gold is as far as the alcoholism But the book references. itself is surprisingly short. I mean, it's less than 100 pages. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's really a pleasure to read. I, I really enjoyed it. And it's kind of a relaxing experience because you do have to kind of read it slowly. You can't, it's not a mm-hmm. book you can rush through at all, you know. And it's just, it's really beautifully written. It was, uh, it reminds me when I first got sober, um, I had, you know, I had all these problems and everything and I just couldn't focus. I couldn't concentrate. I mean, I couldn't read anything and comprehend it. So Mm. after a certain period of sobriety, I think it was maybe 60 days or whatever, I got Charles Dickens, Our Mutual Friend, and I was reading that. And it reminded me of uh, this reminded me of that a lot, just the style of the writing. And it was really um, helpful for me at the time to read because it forced me to read slowly and pay attention and comprehend. And that was the first book I read in sobriety. And it was just, um, I don't know, it was kind of like a test I was giving myself. Do I, because I, I, I guess I was questioning my mental capacity to e- ever again be able to read something and comprehend what I read, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) So that's what I did. I read that book. And anyway, this reminded me of that almost instantly as I started reading it. It took me back to that Charles Dickens novel. That's really interesting. I had the same problem when I was drinking. And I, 
considered myself like a big literature person, but I really wasn't reading a whole lot at that time. And um, I, I think that's it's been a real pleasure in sobriety is to read more and remember more of what I've read. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and still, I kind of use reading as one of those gauges of my serenity or my emotional sobriety. Like, am I able to sit down and get through more than a couple of pages before my mind is all over the place? Exactly. Exactly. And it's really nice, too, because it forces you, like, for this time that we're living in right now, to get away from all the craziness of what's going on and to just kind of kind of put yourself back in that time. So anyway, yeah, so this last absolutely. chapter, this is really cool because he really, in this chapter... I don't know if Stevenson did this on purpose. I don't know what his life story is, but he really, in this chapter, outlines the process of addiction, mm-hmm. in my opinion. I mean, the whole mm-hmm. thing about yeah. how, you know, he, um, when he first, when he first drank of the potion, you know, his first reaction to it, it made him kind of feel sick. You know, he didn't like yep. it, but the transformation when he became Hyde he loved that feeling because he felt younger. He had more energy. He, you know, he didn't have his inhibitions, I guess, you know, just like, you know, a lot of us express our first drink, you know, I didn't really much care for the taste when I first had it, but boy, I really liked what it did for me. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So, um, he starts out explaining that he was born into a pretty wealthy, respectable family. He had a very happy childhood, but that as he started to mature, he stood already committed to a profound duplicity of life. Many a man would have even blazoned such irregularities as I was guilty of, but from the high views that I had set before me, I regarded and hid them with an almost morbid sense of shame. It was thus rather the exacting nature of my aspirations than any particular degradation in my faults that made me what I was and, with even a deeper trench than in the majority of men, severed in me those provinces of good and ill which divide and compound man's dual nature. So apparently his family has some really high expectations for him and he's supposed to be a respectable member of society and he kind of blames that for um, the extra sense of shame he has yep, at his he other he desires. he had to be extra special good, you know, and he had to repress right. th- these bad thoughts he would have. And so he would put on this public display of, he He was just, you know, um, he. I think he's just said he would just have a serious kind of face all the time. He didn't show a lot of emotion. Uh-huh, right. So he pursues scientific study. He continues to grow and realize that there are these two sides of him. And he says, uh, certain agents I have found to have the power to shake and to pluck back that fleshly vestment, even as a wind might toss the curtains of a pavilion. And I have been made to learn that the doom and burden of our life is bound forever on man's shoulders. And when that attempt is made to cast it off, it but returns upon us with more unfamiliar and more awful pressure. So he's really feeling, feeling the pressure. He says, I knew well that I risked death for any drug that so potently controlled and shook the very fortress of identity might by the least scruple of an overdose or at the least inopportunity in the moment of exhibition, utterly blot out that immaterial tabernacle, which I looked to it to change. But the temptation of a discovery so singular and profound at last overcame the suggestions of alarm. So he knows from the beginning how dangerous that is, that this is, um, but it's just too too, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, It's too, so he's really describing addiction here, at least the, you know, Mm -hmm. the the obsession or the want, the the not being able to to say, you can't just say no, you can't say no to this. He just, it's too good. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, good. I could relate with that for sure. Um, then he talks about when he took the potion for the first time, which you kind of described, 
He said the most racking pangs succeeded, a grinding in the bones, deadly nausea, and a horror of the spirit that cannot be exceeded at the hour of birth or death. Then these agonies began to swiftly subside, and I came to myself as if out of a great sickness. There was something strange in my sensations, something indescribably new, and from its very novelty, incredibly sweet. I felt younger, lighter, happier in body. Within, I was conscious of a heady recklessness, a current of disordered sensual images running like a mill in my fancy and solution of the bonds of obligation. And I see that as just, you know, drinking the potion or drink, having, a, having a beer, having a whiskey, whatever, and just kind of reducing those natural inhibitions that we have. And it's like, you know, I remember just as a teenager when I started drinking and, you know, I would like go to a party and you would drink, and you could be funny or you think you're funny and you're part of the party and everything. <laughs> but then after a while, it's like, it doesn't work. You kind of find yourself away from everybody in the party. They're off doing whatever they do and you're kind of in the bathroom getting sick or something. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so then he kind of, he talks about how, because of this experience um, that he finds the rest of life a little bit too boring. Yeah. Like he's, this is like the only way he knows how to have fun. Yeah. And trying to then go about his dry life of study and think about aging and just general everyday life stuff is, um, it's just yeah. too much, he so he decides to, to keep drinking it. He needed yeah. the thrill. <clears throat> yep, exactly. And he describes um, how he um, kind of sets up this um, system that we talked about earlier to protect his, his other life. Um, and he also kind of described a bit that he was kind of losing control of, like, sometimes he would have to take more than just one dose he'd have to take a double dose and sometimes he'd take even three at the risk of his own death knowing that he could die maybe from that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and he does seem to be conscious of um some of the the negative changes in his personality that it brings you know he is having he is enjoying himself but he also says I was kind I was plunged into a kind of wonder at my own depravity right that my every act and thought was centered on self. Um, so it's like, that he, um, po- so when he was high, he would, he'd have this depravity and he was just like totally into it. Um, but then when he came out as Jekyll, he remembered everything he did as high. Yes. And so yeah. and here he was you're, not a blackout drunk. Right. So <laughs> here you're saying that he was kind of intrigued by it at first. Mm-hmm. 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 Yes. He, he understands that, it releases him from his own conscience. Yeah. And that strikes me as the kind of the cunning, baffling and powerful right. aspect. Right. He was drinking for the effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then he describes, he does remember trampling the child and then he remembers murdering the guy. Um, but then he would always try to make up for it. He'd always try to make it right. Yeah, kind of. I mean, as far as saying, like, this is never going to happen again. Um, But then at that point, he he starts transforming into Hyde without Without drinking, taking the potion. Yeah. And that gets that really was interesting to me. Yeah. It it Um, wasn't like every time he would fall asleep that he would wake up as Hyde. It could just Mm -hmm. be a nap or something and he'd just wake up and be Hyde. Yep. And he does not understand how it's happening. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. So he says, I was slowly losing hold of my original and better self yep. and slowly becoming incorporated with my second and worst. Yeah. Just like mm-hmm. an addict, you know, as you, as yep. you, you know, your addiction kind of transforms your personality and that becomes kind of the normal life. You know, my life is now this, you know, having these problems and having to lie and connive my way through life. That's the way I am now. I'm no longer yeah. Dr. Jekyll, who was prim and proper and doing everything right. Yeah. And even when he he decides, like, I've, okay, this is, this is it. I've got to make a choice who I'm going to be. I'm going to go with Jekyll. But he 
makes a conscious choice. Well, it says unconscious reservation that he had because he didn't give up the house in Soho. Right. He didn't. He didn't destroy Hyde's That's clothes. That's right. He always kept it there as an option, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. So he didn't uh, surrender completely, yeah. I guess. He we said, could I'm say. done with this. I ain't going to do this, this hide anymore. But at the same time, he kept the flat in Soho. He kept all the clothes. So he always had that out. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So let's see. So Hyde starts coming back more and more frequently, as we said. He says, uh, I became a creature eaten up and emptied by. Uh, lang- uh, by fear, languidly weak, both in body and mind, and solely occupied by one thought, the horror of my other self. I am a soul, a soul boiling with causeless hatreds, a body that seemed not strong enough to contain the raging energies of life. And then so both sides of himself start to really hate the other side, too. Hyde totally detests Jekyll, and Jekyll is sick of Hyde and wishes he could get rid of him. And finally, he says um, that he's been overcome by a certain callousness of the soul, a certain acquiescence of despair, finally severed me from my own face and nature. And this is when he realizes that um, the medicine has ceased to work very well, and he doesn't know how he's going to get more anyway, and he decides that he has to commit suicide. He could not, it wouldn't work anymore. I found that kind of interesting. He, um, cause didn't he, he sent out to, for his servant to bring more of the stuff so he could make it and it wouldn't work. And he thought yeah. that he thought the stuff that they brought him wasn't pure enough. There was something wrong, but it's just, it's just kind of a metaphor how, you know, your drinking, your drug use just doesn't work anymore. You're no longer getting the, the effect that you were in the beginning. It's just really just killing you at this point. It's taking mm-hmm. you away. It's taking you out of life. It's taking you away. And his, he found his only, his only option was uh, suicide. Yeah. It's too bad he didn't have AA. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Um, so what I did not know about this that I learned in researching it is that um, it's widely considered by experts to be a sexuality morality tale oh, really? and a, a gay allegory. Mm-hmm. I wonder about that. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Now, why, how was, how was that? Did I say? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I think, I think, I mean, it can apply to obviously. It's pretty much all men in the like story. It's all hidden men. Hidden lives. <laughs> and like, yeah, like the, I think just at that time, oh. probably homosexuality was like the most shameful right. thing Repressed. that a man could be yeah. hiding. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. So it wasn't like deliberately written to be like the story of an addict. It's not, you don't think it was, I don't think so. No, no. I think it was supposed to be written about, about like a secret gay life, but to, like to me and to my reading, it just screams addiction. It sure does. It yeah. sure does. From the, from your first experience with it, the elation that it gives you, your dependence upon it, how you need more and more of it, how it stops working. Your life is all messed up and you're drinking and your life is still messed up and you can't get your life straight. Yep. You can't get back to Dr. Jekyll, you know, how interesting. Yeah. It's like, you know, I remember reading the big book and it talks about that doc, that Jekyll and Hyde thing, you know, about how your personality kind of changes, you know, when you drink. And of course, you know, I I read that in the big book and I understood, I understood the, what, what it was saying, but it's, it's really nice to actually read the story to get a more fuller explanation of, of that. You know, um, I I read a bit of really interesting analysis of of the story um, by this guy Stephen Padnick, who you know points out because I guess when I when I first read it and I was thinking about how alcohol changes our personality, I guess I think of it in terms of like there's two people. You know, like there's our sober self and our alcoholic self. And it's almost like they're completely different people, you know. Um, But what Padnick pointed out, he says the most fundamental mistake that people make 
is not understanding that Jekyll wants to do all the things he does as Hyde. He loves being Hyde, as you pointed out. He revels in that freedom, and it's only when the consequences catch up with him that it becomes a problem for him. You know, he's not two different people. Like, people think the, that Jekyll and Hyde is, are distinct people, but they're, they're one person. And yeah, he points they're, out we, they're aware of each other. They're, I mean, yeah. Jekyll knows what he does is Hyde. Well, and Hyde never speaks really like we don't have that's right we have this explanation from jekyll that's we don't right. get that from Hyde. that's right that's right yeah so um so you know it, he says that this mistake leads us to other misunderstandings um first jekyll is not good he's not bad either he is deeply repressed yes that's the thing that's the thing the repression and his biggest sin is that he wants to face no consequences for what he does. Right. Um, second, Hyde's not an accident. Um, it's, he was totally intended. Um, and third, that, as you mentioned, Jekyll's not unaware or out of control when he's Hyde. Um, he, he remembers everything and he knows exactly what he's doing. And lastly, that Hyde is not a monster. He's described in a very non-human terms as like ape-like or brutish, um, but um, he's actually still a, still still a human just being. a person. Still yeah. A person. Yeah. So it's, it, to most people, this is a story of two completely different people and personalities, one good, one evil, they're at war with each other. But um, Padnick says that it's much more like a complicated take on the nature of evil, society, shame, repression. And it's important that we remember that um, this is one person and that is within all of us. Like the potential is within every one of us. Right. And that's hard sometimes for us as human beings to comprehend that, you know, within a, any person can, any human being has the capability of good and, and, and horrible evils at the same time, at the same time, the same person could have those two different uh, Absolutely. things. It's hard to understand because we like to think of things as black and white. You're either good or bad. Right. But we're just complicated people. And no matter how long we've been sober too, um, it's, it's in there. There's always that potential. So I, I wanted to make sure to mention that even though I was inspired to read this by someone else who relapsed, you know, like I see that in myself too. And in, and everybody, you know, we're, how interesting that to, you were inspired to, to read this from your friend's relapse that, cause you noticed a, a change in your friend and you thought I need to read that book. Oh yeah. And it's not the first, first time I've witnessed that with a relapse and, um, and I've relapsed myself, and I think, like, looking back, I can see the change in myself, but at the time, not really. You know, when you're inside of it, that's why it's so cunning, baffling, and powerful and insidious. Like, you really can't perceive it as strongly um, when you're under under the spell. No. So. Now, I remember, um, actually, early sobriety, early sobriety when I'm facing the consequences of my actions from my drinking. And I am now aware that I, I remember comparing myself to what I was then to what I was in high school when I was first starting out in high school and all the dreams I had of a great life when I was in high school, all the wonderful things I wanted to achieve. But the reality of what I was, I was sitting in a jail cell, you mm. know, because of all my drinking and it was just, I don't know, it's just that I could see that, that I had veered off. It's, it's almost like I was looking back at a different person in a way, but I knew I was all the one person, but I, I definitely t could tell at that time. I remember, I just remember having this, what I was doing, I, I turned myself into the bell bondsman <laughs> because they because I was paranoid <laughs> because they were after me, they, but I wasn't really paranoid because they were really after me. <laughs> but anyway, so I turned myself in and then they put me in jail where I have to wait to see the judge. Right. And so as I'm in jail, I'm there for quite a long time and I have time to think. And that's when I'm thinking back to when 
before my drinking got really bad. And I was this person with dreams and ambition. And I was kind of a good kid. You know, I was a good kid. But all of a sudden, I became this lawbreaker that you had to lock up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> By <Yeah>. Mr. Hyde. <laughs> Absolutely. I can, I can certainly relate with that. I'm sure most of us can. Yeah. Well, you really did a good job with this, Sam. I really appreciate all the effort that you put into the analysis of it. I mean, I'm, I, I read the book. I enjoyed it. Um, I, w- I think I might want to go back and read it another time. Because as I said, it's a very short book, um, very well written. It's really poetic the way that he writes. Um, I also thought that you know, the, the way I like the way that the book is set up because it's almost like a, it's almost like a movie in a way, you know, where you start off with, you start off with like, uh, you know, the, the hurting the kid. And then you, then you find out later on what was really going on. It's just kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I, I guess I had never read it because at this point, like everybody knows the ending. So it's like, what's the fun of like reading a mystery if you already know the ending, but I would say it's still really worth reading. It surprised me how great it was. Yeah, Um, it really is. And it does put context so that when you read the big book and you read that little part about the, if you read the big book, I I actually don't read it anymore. I don't either. (laughs) Why would you want to? I actually didn't even know that this was referenced in the big book until you said that. Yeah. Yeah. There's that reference of that Jekyll and Hyde, you know, of course, but yeah. Well, okay. Well, thank you, Sam. I think that you did a fantastic job. Uh, it was a great book. Um, it definitely is a, an interesting study in uh, whatever that uh, repression or addiction or whatever. But as a as a person in recovery, I can certainly appreciate the parallels there. So what a lot of fun. Thank you so yeah. much for this suggestion. It was a great idea. We'll have to read another classic sometime. <laughs> that, see yeah, we, we could uh, we could make this a thing. Well, let's get some uh, comments from the listeners on suggestions or something. Yeah, kind of highbrow um, for the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> let's take this podcast <laughs> up a notch intellectually no um well thank you so much i really appreciate it 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 was was fun it was a lot of fun so that's it that's another episode of aa beyond belief the podcast thank you everybody for listening and thank you sam this was so much fun what a great way to spend a sunday morning and uh so anyway if you do want to help out the podcast you can do so by uh, visiting our patreon site patreon.com slash aa beyond belief become a patron just contribute a, a dollar a month or, or $5 a month, whatever you can. It really does help out a lot. But if you can't, that's okay, too. We just love doing this. It's so much fun. Y'all take care. Be well. We'll be back again real soon.